I don't know about you, but I heard and gathered a lot of things for myself this week, and of course, with only a few minutes, it's hard to unpack it all for you, but there were a few things that I thought might be helpful. Since our theme this season is learning to follow Jesus right where we are in everyday moments and discerning that our everyday tasks, our everyday life, our ordinariness can actually become a guide into things that are spiritual matters of the heart, things that are below the surface. John's gospel is wonderful in that it's different than the other three. I think that he is a poet, if not a mystic, and he tells the truth slant, giving a little different angle, a little different perspective than the other three who told Jesus' story. And all the way through the gospel of John, Um, John uses conversations to move the narrative along. It's precisely these conversations that act as a vehicle by which Jesus moves people from surface to spiritual. So that each one, as he addresses, as he dialogues, might discover the springs of life John is very concerned about the things of life. It's in his gospel that we find out that his purpose was that you might believe in Christ and in believing might discover and experience life in his name. So life is what we're talking about. That is the core of Jesus' conversation with this woman, this woman at the well. And this story, of course, is an ancient story, and it's probably very familiar to most of you. It is to me. Water becomes something that is metaphorically pointing to life, that which is absolutely essential to every living being and every living creature, even to the earth. Our survival and flourishing depends on that core essence, that core element, water. So then, in John's use, water becomes the metaphor for life in God, or the spirit, as he will tell us in John 7. However, I don't know about you, but we oftentimes have difficulty knowing our own thirsts. When I first began to sat, uh, sit my nephew and my um, niece, my sister would always say, carry the, their sippy cups and make sure they have plenty of water. And so every few moments, every hour, whatever, I was a little bit neurotic and I kept wanting them to sip their water because the last thing I wanted them to do was get dehydrated. And children need to know to drink their water. And so I was helping them to discover their thirst and pattern their taste on needing that water. I was with Kathleen Norris, author and poet, for a few days last week 
at a conference in Kansas City, and one of the things that she said, which I think summarized my 10 years of theology, she said it in one sentence, boiled it down to this. Theology is paying attention to God. God is always providing something, and generally it's right before our eyes, yet we have a hard time recognizing it. So our task then is to discern what is right before our eyes, but we don't necessarily see it. And in this case, maybe we don't even recognize what we're thirsting for. So the task today for me comes out of Scott Karen's poem. He offers me help in my ordinary life and with this ordinary example by saying this, how might one dip beneath the murmur and descend into a self unadorned, undistracted, wholly present, to the blessed being, in whom another blessed being comes to be. How might one dip beneath the murmur and descend into a self, unadorned, undistracted, wholly present to the blessed being, in whom another blessed being comes to be? Well, Jesus, departing from a conversation that isn't very helpful, one between religious leaders about who's doing what and how many they were baptizing, makes his way, so to speak, upstream, against the current, intentionally facing the taboos by meeting and going through, by meeting a Samaritan woman and going through Samaria. Samaria. He sits down at a well and begins a conversation. Give me a drink. And as she looks at him, this stranger asking a very strange thing begins courageously to have that conversation. So I'm paying attention to what kind of conversations we hold with strangers and those strained things that present ourselves, present themselves to us. And in that moment, and in her conversation, the very first thing she's conscious of, the very surface thing, is what divides, what abstracts, what separates. Culture, cultural norms. Race, racism. Religion, Gender, these things are taboo, and she knows she's taboo. This is all nomenclature. This is all language. Her ancestry has defined her. Her neighboring kin has contrived her and hated her. And even her own choices, speaking of her relationships, has reduced her to someone that is somewhat one-dimensional. God gave us nomenclature, the capacity to identify and classify in the garden. It was a good thing, and this good thing was to connect to that which is different 
and unknown so that there might be relationship. Adam named the animals. But in the fall, and with the, the twist of sin, that which is good can often distort. And instead of intimacy, those surface things like gender, race, and religion, as we label and filter and classify, judge and reduce and diminish, abstract our humanity, we are oftentimes left very empty. Is there any reason why she shouldn't be here alone and isolated when all that she has known has reduced her to this single, one-dimensional woman? But Jesus isn't concerned with those labels, nor with those taboos. He begins to offer her what is core to her heart. He knows her better than she knows herself. And he offers her something that she is thirsty for that she doesn't even recognize at this time. I'm interested in knowing what you, what divides you, what separates you, what abstracts you. What are your prejudices? How have you been injured by a prejudice? I'm interested also in a conversation not so much on what divides us, but what might unite us. I think that is a better kind of conversation, and I think that's a little bit more of what Jesus is at, at, after with her. And so he asks for a drink, and she said, how is it that you asked me for a drink? And he said, if you knew who it was that was speaking to you, you would have asked me for a drink. And I would have given you water, living water, welling up to eternal life. But I don't think that she understood what he was talking about. She talks about this well, this physical well, its depth. She begins to challenge the unknown, something that isn't familiar to her. She challenges his authority. Are you greater than Jacob, who gave us this well? And I think that's a little bit of what we do when confronting the unknown, the strange or the stranger. We challenge their authority instead of being open to what they might have to teach us. Jesus precipitates her, her, her thirst. He doesn't go with her where she wants to go. He doesn't stay on the surface of things, but rather he takes her down deeper. He says, go call your husband. Well, there, I think he hit a nerve. She acknowledges that she doesn't have a husband, and he affirms, you've told the truth. But I don't hear judgment in her voice, or in his voice, and I'm not sure she experienced judgment. I wonder what kind of conversation we have when Jesus hits a nerve in us. Maybe when there is some sort of failure revealed, something becomes clear, 
something below the surface of things. We don't know if her husbands abandoned her. We don't know if they died or if they were legally divorcing her and on what grounds. We don't know why she's chosen to live with a man at this point. It's easy to quickly judge the surface of things. But John does not give us the circumstances, nor is speculation very helpful. The thing that we can hear Jesus say is affirming truth without judgment. I wonder if we're that gracious with ourselves. I wonder if we're that gracious with others. So he doesn't get into her morality. Moral formation is never the end, nor does it offer that which transforms. Moral formation is great with parenting children. And in most cases, as we come to Christ, there's some moral formation that needs to happen. But moral formation and our morality is not the end. It is not what Jesus is after. It's curious to me that he takes her deeper still, which says a little bit about what he's after with our behavior, that there is something at the root where the change happens that might actually cause a different kind of person, a different kind of behavior. If we were to just stay on that surface of moral formation, I think it would be easy to change our habits but not have our heart changed at all. And so, as he points out that she has spoken truth and a nerve has been hit, um, hit, she diverts. She then asks about worship. And this is something to pay attention in our conversations with Jesus and with ourselves and with others. Pay attention to your diversions. Our own tactics of diversions might lead us deeper if we're attentive to really what is hurting in our heart. I applaud her courage. She stayed in conversation with Jesus. And although he was aiming for rock bottom and coming to her at every angle, she stayed. She continued to ask questions. She was willing to go where he wanted to go, into the heart and into her emptiness. And so she diverts with worship, and he follows her right into that subject. She points to a physical terrain. He points to within. Her worship seems to be grounded in the God of her ancestry in tradition and form, his relationality and a manner of being in the world, and always an invitation that is more fluid and flows in the spirit and with the spirit and wherever we go on earth than trying to nail down something 
in a physical locale. For God is spirit, and those who worship him, worship him in spirit and in truth. And now she begins to awaken, connecting the dots. Now she begins to see herself. She asks about Messiah, the one who would reveal things, who would come and make muddy waters clear. He says, I am he who speaks to you. And she is slowed into that vulnerability where love opens her up and draws her out. Where she finds a safe place to be seen, to be known, to be held, a container of sorts. And simultaneously, in that safe moment, she sees all of herself and the one who still loves her. There is a certain beauty that arises in the recognition of just how imprisoned we've been, and yet how welcomed we are. And she begins to gush. <laughs> she leaves her water pot gushing with that recognition that love and that life. And she goes into those places of taboo, those places that had injured her, had framed her askewed, had abstracted her. She goes right back to her village, unencumbered, leaving her water pot behind, gushing, forth about the one who really knows her. I wonder what her face looked like. Did it radiate? In the Psalms it says those who look to the Lord will radiate, will be radiant, will shine. I'm not sure what she told him or if she got all the theological categories right or right doctrine or she I don't know if she asked anyone to say the sinner's prayer. <laughs> but she said, come and see the Christ. Her response is somewhat effervescent. And she also becomes the first evangelist. She goes back into her um, city and even becomes that human living icon for what Jesus would say to his disciples after his resurrection and before his ascension. You will be witnesses to me starting in Jerusalem, then in Judea, and then in Samaria, and even unto the utter parts of the world. She is the first that evangelizes. And share. She is that picture of John 7 where Jesus said, anyone who believes in me, anyone who comes and asks, anyone who is thirsty and receives, 
out of their innermost being will gush a torrent of living water. The sad irony of the story is that the disciples make their way back and they see him, the rabbi, speaking with a woman. And the actual language there is marveled, but it means they were incredulous. They were incredulous over his speaking to a woman and that woman and in this place. It seems as if they were encumbered in contrast to her who had let go of that which would hinder her. It seems as if the kind of conversation they were having was in their head because they weren't courageous enough to ask questions. And unfortunately, they were concerned with surface things, food, and their own particular prejudices. So, what have you come here to hear? What have you come here to ask for? Where are you willing to go? What is your thirst? Is it for life? Jesus says, if you are thirsty, ask, and I will give you the water of eternal life, and it will well up in you and gush forward. Whoever believes in me and asks, I will give. And now as you sit in these silent moments, I would invite you to go just a little deeper. Drop down a little bit more. If you haven't already, you might want to start a conversation. See if there's a question that would emerge. What do you sense might be a hindrance for the free flow of God's love and spirit in your own life? and towards others. Take a moment now in silence to hold that conversation with Jesus.